uh, I'll go back to the welcoming screen, but I'm gonna pass the ball to Gene to kind of start us off. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for attending. This is the first part of our Justice Involved Mental Health Series. We also have trainings on Wednesday and Friday. We are so lucky to have Marcelo come present with us. He is from Telecare. He has run so many wonderful programs and oversees so many wonderful programs with this population. Um, so he's going to share some of his expertise and some of the core foundational skills we need to work well with this population. Um, if you have any IT issues, please private message PMHP Zoom support in chat. Marcelo will be checking the chat as well, but you can also feel free to speak out loud, any questions as you will all be able to unmute yourselves throughout the training as well. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, and the sweeping street truck is passing on right now as we start. <laughs> I don't think you guys can hear it. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Marcelo. Uh, I work for Telecare Corporation. I oversee operations of Telecare in LA County for the community programs and the state of Arizona. We have programs in Yuma, Casa Grande, and Sierra Vista. Um, I, I've been doing, uh, I've been working in mental health for 33 years. I've been, I'm Brazilian. I was a child psychologist in Brazil. I work with children with autism and and uh, genetic disorders. Um, I moved to the United States in 1990. I first was a legal alien dishwasher, a sizzler, and then I went back to school and became a therapist. Uh, and then I've been working uh, with serious mental, uh, folks with serious mental illness uh, since 1990 in the United States. I started doing, I started running programs actually in San Diego and then in LA County, homeless program, programs for folks coming out of prison and jail and older adults programs and etc. So what I'm what I'm going to talk about with you what I'm going to talk to you today about it uh, it's, it's it's really uh, more from experience uh, that we at Telecare have with the folks coming out of the, the uh, jails and prisons um, we don't have a lot of solutions. We don't have a lot of, uh, we just have a lot of questions. And from our experience, um, we want to share with you some of the things that we figured out, but uh, it's a brand new field uh, and there's not a lot of things out there. So um, it's wide open. And I think we're building the field as we go. Uh, just starting with the, let me go ahead and share my screen. Um, and then we can start with the, the, the very the very concept of uh, of just as evolved mental health. Maybe I should explain a little bit. Um, so in uh, not too long ago, people used to call forensic, you know, forensic mental health or forensic. Uh, can you guys see my screen? I think you all can see my screen and you all can hear me. All right. Uh, people used to say forensic mental health, uh, but forensic is actually the, the science they study uh, the uh, situation regarding the crime, right? Forensics uh, fo focus on a crime. Uh, 
uh, you know, like uh, forensic uh, profiles and things like that. Uh, when we talk about uh, fo uh, our folks, our members, our clients that get involved in the justice in, uh, in the justice system, it's not really forensics. Our job is not really a forensic job. Our job is a mental health job for folks that are involved in the justice uh, system. So instead of forensics, we call justice involved mental health. You know, our job is rehabilitation. Our job is not to solve crimes. <laughs> Um, so here in this slides, I, I've been I've been doing this class for uh, over 15 years or so, um, and uh, you know this is this slide is almost 10 years old, uh, but tells you the zeitgeist of California and the United States in terms of uh, justice justice involved and education. In California, since 80, uh, in, uh, until about 10 years ago, and a daughter has this has changed. Uh, we built 22 prisons and only one university, uh, Channel Island University. Um, so this tells you that uh, there's pretty much two ways to deal with the issues of uh, with the incarceration in this country. One way is rehabilitation, uh, like programs like. Uh, uh, AB 109 and, uh, you know, programs that are helping people to uh, go back to the community. And the other way is to just build more prisons and incarcerate more people. So as you can see, uh, lay in the last 20, 30 years, we're doing the, the way of the orange way. <laughs> the orange is the new black. So we are, we, are, we are building prisons and incarcerating our black and brown youth instead of rehabilitating them. Now, so uh, let's start from the very beginning. Uh, where does prisons come from? What's the idea of prison? This guy here is a, is a French guy. Uh, his name is Michel Foucault. Uh, Foucault wrote about the birth of prisons. He wrote about also the birth of mental health uh, hospitals. He talks about, uh, he wrote a book in French, it's called um, History of Madness, but I think in English it's called Madness and Civilization, the translation. Uh, in Madness and Civilization, Foucault talks about how the same uh, large warehouses in, uh, in, uh, in, in Europe are the same places that they treat the people that have lepra, and then later uh, from lepra, he moved to syphilis, and then from syphilis, it moved to mental illness. And the idea that society always had to, uh, to uh, marginalize 10 to 15% of its population and warehouse them far away. So first was the people of lepra, then was the syphilitic, then uh, was the mentally ill. And Foucault, as a gay man, he ended up dying, uh, he got HIV and died of AIDS. Uh, he thought the next population that people were gonna uh, marginalize and put away was uh, a gay man, uh, HIV positive. Uh, well, he was wrong. It was not that. It was actually some of those buildings now are prisons. Uh, so the new, the 10-15% of the population that is now being marginalized, put warehoused and put away is actually the people in prisons. So where did prisons come from? What's the idea of prison come from? So, uh, you know, prison is a it was started as a political idea. 
this is Rosa Parks. Uh, Rosa Parks went to jail. I didn't. I didn't grow up in this country, so I didn't do the fifth grade here. So I'm sorry if I tell some of uh, American history wrong. <laughs> I didn't study it, but I believe Rosa Parks sat on the wrong side of the bus or in the back of the bus or some or in the front of the bus or something like that, and then she went in jail for that because she was a political prisoner. Uh, Jesus Christ uh, went to the dungeon, dungeon because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so he went to jail for treason. So people would go to dungeons and jails and prisons for treason, for being enemy of the state, for political reasons, like Marquis de Sade and people like that. Dungeons and prisons were only for political prisoners. People that commit a crime, uh, the punishment was corporal. You know, like in China, they would put those those like dog collar kind of thing that you cannot feed yourself. Um, uh, uh, you know, in uh, some other countries, you know, uh, you steal something, they cut your hand off. Uh, and then crucifixions, uh, hangings, uh, lashings, they still happen today. So crime was threatened with corporal punishment and prisons were for political reasons. Uh, until uh, Foucault talks about it, until about the 18th century, 19th century, uh, came the idea from from the military that people go to the military and they will come out, you know, more behaved. So from the idea of the military was born the idea of putting people in prison for crimes and rehabilitate them after a punishment of years in prison. Uh, so. You know, just like less fast forward now, you know, prison expenses in the United States used to be six billion in the 80s. It was 80 billion about 10 years ago. There's a lot more now. 10 million of those adults in the prisons, uh, they have a, a serious mental illness and they cost about 10 years ago, they cost about uh, $300 million. So uh, the uh, folks going to prison, oops, folks going to prison, uh, coming back, coming out of jails and prisons, they were going right, right back on. Recidivism, which I'll talk about later, which is going back to prison, uh, um, it was very high. And so in 1974, this guy, Martinson, uh, came and um, decided to study how the uh, practices of rehabilitation of people coming out of jail and see if any of them work. So he, he wrote this book uh, called What Works? And it was just reviewing how the justice involved practice of rehabilitation and see what works. He came to the conclusion that in 1974, everything that has been done until 1974 did not work. There was no evidence that anything was working. So there was no evidence-based practice at that point. That got totally misinterpreted. And for Martinson, they still today, you hear ideas such as people with antisocial personality disorders, people with uh, you know, uh, criminogenic history, uh, there's no solution for them. There's no therapy for them. There's no rehabilitation for them. You just need to lock them, lock them away and throw away the key. And that's half of our country is to believe on that. And that was from Martin's idea. Martin didn't say nothing works. Martin said, up to now, nothing has worked. We need to figure out what works. This was so depressing for Martinson that he ended up killing himself. So 
1972, we have about, uh, this, sorry, it's very depressing for a Monday morning. Hope you know I start drinking already. I can see some of you there. Uh, 1972, uh, we had about 300,000 people in, in prisons. Uh, in 2014, we have about 2,200,000. Uh, our prison population uh, increased about 900% uh, a couple of years ago. If you go from 1970s to a couple of years ago, 900%. Something happened in 1972, 73, 74 that exploded the prison population. Um, yeah, stop sharing here because I want to ask you a question. Um, so let me ask you this. What happened? What happened in 1973-74 that exploded the prison population? Go ahead and mute yourself or write in a comment. And I'll tell you this. The, the answer is, uh, is right in front of you and kind of like below, below my head. Nixon and his buddy uh, Kissinger. Uh, so they, they, how do I, say? let me share again. There you go. Uh, about 1970, well, 1971, yeah, the war on drugs. Um, again, this slides is about 10 years old, 800% increase in 40 years. I'm gonna have my buddy Jay-Z tell you a little bit better than me um, where uh, uh, about the war on drugs uh, and some data. And that 10.30, that means that we should be about 10.30 now with 10.15, so we're actually ahead of time. Sorry. <laughs> what do you think of that? Any comments? Yep. So in, uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard about the concept of restorative, I cannot say my English is horrible, restorative justice, restorative justice, restorative, restorative, one of those. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the difference between, uh, before Obama, uh, crack cocaine and cocaine, uh, um, if you get a little, let's say, I don't have any package here, but a little package the size of a post-it note, let's say, uh, a little package of crack uh, like this uh, in terms of time that you're going to get in jail equals a hundred packets of cocaine. So, which makes no sense because crack is actually less cocaine than cocaine. <laughs> crack is just cocaine with shit on it. But it's still, it's still after, after Obama, it's still 18 to 1. So still now, if you get caught with this much uh, crack, would be the same time as 18 packets of this of cocaine, which is crazy. I mean, there's uh, there's people in the country, Holly Mitchell, which is a local lady, uh, she's one fighting against this. Uh, but about restorative, restorative or rest, I, I can't say the word, but you got what I'm saying, restorative justice. Uh, in Oakland, that is a, uh, uh, if you went to, jail or prison for selling marijuana and you get out uh you go to the top if you want to open a dispensary you your uh, your uh, life scan thing gets waived and you go to the top of the list so you can 
get out of jail or prison for selling marijuana and go straight into opening a dispensary. So that is like what someone just mentioned before. I forgot their name, but you know, the fact that black and brown men uh, spend their lives in prison for selling weed. And then now you got some uh, major corporations like Marlboro and, uh, uh, you know, it's going to make bucks on, on this state next where there's people going into prison. Okie dokie. So you guys got the idea. We are in the same, in the same boat here. Um, I actually, you know, self self disclosure. When I was a teenager, I sold weed in Brazil, and I went to jail three times for it. Uh, it was my way to support myself. I lived by my own. I left my parents' house when I was 14. Um, so a bunch of kids would just live together, and we sold weed and did some petty crime. You know, we went to the market and we would buy milk and bread and steal ham and cheese. <laughs> uh, but you know, in some some zip codes in some countries in this planet, uh, there's not a lot of options. Uh, all right, let's let's go back to sharing. All right, some data. I know who love some of you. I'm sure love data uh, on recidivism and nonviolent crime. So three quarters of the prison admissions are for nonviolent crimes. I, I guess that's a given, and they are mostly for drug uh, uh, drug uh, drug-related uh, offenses. There is no evidence that longer sentences decrease recidivism. So longer sentences do not reduce recidivism. If you get two years, you get 10 years, you get 20 years, it does not change the likelihood that you're going to commit a crime again. I learned that with my kids. If you put a kid on timeout for one minute, it's the same thing that you put a kid in timeout for the half of the day. There's no difference. You know, I used to like, okay, no iPad for you. Okay, no computer, no iPad. Okay, two hours time out, no computer, no iPad. Okay, you know, you keep adding sh sh stuff to it. It then makes no difference. They just put them in time out for one minute. Uh, 14 states have no minimum age for trying children as adults. So the numbers that Jay-Z just told you, in 14 states, those numbers include children. How crazy is that? Uh, the three-year recidivism is about uh, two-thirds. So in about three years for our crimes, two-thirds of people go back to prison. Uh, for the crimes that we deal with uh, in our, our mental health programs, the low-level crimes, the you know stealing, drug low-level drug offenses, non-violent, non-serious, non-sexual crimes, the recidivism is that in one year. So two-thirds of people go back to prison in one year. Uh, one third go back to prison within one month or jail and prison. It's just like homelessness. People that have been homeless for a long time, within, uh, when you put them in housing, within one month, one third of them would go back to become homeless because they just cannot stay in the housing. That's why there's this uh, evidence-based practice. You guys should maybe one day get a training or UCLA should maybe offer a training for you. <laughs> it's called critical time intervention. It's, it was developed in New York and it was for people that, it was for homelessness. You know, the, the idea that the first two weeks you need to engage with the person, see them almost every day. Otherwise is a lot, you lose the battle. And same thing, we do that in our telecare programs in the first two weeks, first month, we see them almost every day. It's uh, very intensive because if you don't make a connection within the first two weeks, you pretty much lost it. 50% uh, 
are back. Okay, that's the 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 fifth percent are back in, in six months. Men have higher recidivism than women. I I bet my guess is testosterone. You know, uh, it, I found out that for every kid that a man has, a father has, and I'm saying kid fathering a kid meaning like hanging around, not just fathering the kid and splitting, right? But it's, you father a kid and you hang around and you raise a kid, you lose eight percent testosterone. I have two kids, so I'm like 16% down. I'm like uh, three quarters of the man I used to be. <laughs> uh, <coughs> um, here's a trippy wonder. I I haven't figured this out. The sitting in prison or in jail and not knowing how long you're going to be there must be traumatic. I don't know, but only 10% of people go back to it. Uh, that's one I don't know. That's one for you guys to figure out. Next time we see each other, you tell me. <coughs> Uh, here's one thing. You're sitting at the, your clinic, I don't know, Pacific Clinic, Stellacare, uh, Didi Hirsch, uh, with the county, you know, you're working and a referral package comes in and you see there's a justice involved mental health. Uh, they have justice involvement and you see the crime somehow. It, this is actually, you won't see the crime is a right to the individual to not share with you their crime. And so probation, parole, they would not share if the individual does not want, doesn't want to share. So you do not have a right to know what crime they did, but hopefully you build a relationship that they share with you. But let's say he came with a, you know, their crime and now it says murder. And oh shit, you know, murder. I'm not, I, I'm not taking a murder in our clinic, you know. And actually, a, a serious crime have low recidivism. Sexual crimes, for example, rape and child molestation have a very low recidivism. Uh, second degree murder is only 10% recidivism. Car theft, and I, I stole two, three cars in my life as a teenager. Uh, car theft is 72% recidivism. So I stole cars when I was 16. Uh, by the age of 21, I had committed no more crimes. 75% uh, uh, of transition age youth that commit crimes, 75% of them stop committing crimes by the age of 21, just naturally. And I'll tell you about that, which is ontogenic and sociogenic factors coming up next. But uh, so, Low-level crimes have a very high recidivism. High-level crimes have a very low recidivism. A friend of mine, Shad Maruna, there's a book of him I'm going to show you later. I don't make any money if you buy his book. Uh, he's a criminologist. He's the head of criminology at the Vickers University in New York. He has this joke. Uh, I'll modify since yesterday was Mother, Mother's Day. Uh, he said that the lowest recidivism is, is matricide because you only have one mom to kill so after you kill your mom there's no it's not funny unless if you're a criminal if you're a criminologist i guess <laughs> his joke is actually a patricide patricide is the lowest recidivism because you only have one dad to kill uh recidivism decreases with age and increases with mental health issue well, the mental health issue as we go through you're going to see why now the decreases with age uh, has to do with ontogenic and sociogenic factors. So sociogenic factors, let's start with ontogenic. Ontogenic factors are, you know, things such as testosterone, uh, you know, uh, your body, you know, uh, a 60 year old man has a hard time running from the police than an 18 year old. 
you know so there's your body is different your libido is different uh your testosterone is lower uh your adrenalines you know so there's all these body things that happen to, to you chemically that make you less likely to commit a crime uh and then the social genetic effects is the social, you know, a uh, six-year-old went through a lot of rites of passage that a 17-year-old did not go through. You know, I don't know, Kizanera, Bar Mitzvah, Sweet 16, weddings, funerals, anniversaries, uh, marriages, serving the army, uh, you know, all these rituals, all these things that move you through the next phase of life, right? So that's where a lot of these folks that went to prison when they were 17, 20, they come out and their life, they're stuck. Some of these guys went to prison when they were 17. They come out when they're like 37 or 47. They never dated. They never went out with a girl. They never, uh, you know, when they went to prison, cellular phones are like the size of my head, right? <laughs> um, and now there's like this thing called smartphones, you know, like, you know. Their life is stuck uh, years ago. Anyway, uh, all right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, recidivism. I just love that. I had just to put that there. <laughs> Our friend Nicholas Cage talking. You know, this is a great move. Raising Arizona. It's oh, a yeah. great move about justice involved mental health. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, uh, it talks about how for some of these folks, you know, prison is ac actually like uh, a home, like it's like school, like, you know, and for the for the street folks, uh, you know, uh, go to jail is like going to high school, go to prison is like go to grad school, right? You come out of prison, you like, you know, if you're involved in a gang, uh, prison time is like brownie points in your resume, right? Um, so there's a whole culture of prison and uh, slangs and, you know, so uh, just a little thing about mental illness and violence. I, I have to do this, um, you know, because when I started doing this, it was the Columbine shootings. And then after I started doing this training, like every time I did the training, like just three days before there was a shooting in some school. Right. Um, and people always, if it's if it's a black man or if it's like a Muslim man or like a you know dark skinned man, you know, it's political reasons, is religious terrorism, whatever. If it's a white guy, a Christian white guy, then is uh, mental illness, right? Oh, it's mental illness. So a lot of those kids, white kids, that go in and shoot a bunch of people in schools, that white kid anger has nothing to do with mental illness. Nothing to do with mental illness. These people that go in and shoot people in churches and stuff, nothing to do with mental illness. Uh, those are like the one in the old days, people said, just playing crazy. Just like, you know, not, it's, there's not a illness there. You know, there's, there's evil really. Um, if there's a McDonald's and there's 10 people in the McDonald's and one of them get up and start shooting, and killing people. If there's one person there with serious mental illness, ten times likely that person is going to be sh shot at and killed than will be the shooter. Someone with a serious mental illness is ten times more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than be the perpetrator of a violent crime. But that's not what CNN and Fox News tells you. So if there's a shooting, 
The first thing you should think is not that the shooter has a mental illness. The first thing you should think is that the person who got shot probably has a mental illness, not the shooter. Only three to 5% of violent crimes can really be attributed to people with serious mental illness. In that 10 years period from 2000 to 2010, out of 120,000 gun-related killings, only 5% were people with serious mental illness. And the drugs, the same thing too. <clears throat> There's like a Latino guy, a black guy, and a white guy walking around smoking crack. The white guy has a 6% chance of getting arrested. The Latino guy has a 16% chance of getting arrested. The black guy has a 46% chance of getting arrested. For every three black guys in prison for drugs and uh, for drug offenses, there's two Latinos and one white guy. Although drugs, as you all know, is an equal opportunity thing. <laughs> About 13% of people use drugs or more in all races, blue, black, yellow, all races, all religions, all cultures, all countries, you know, I'd say 15 to 20% of people do drugs. But in Chicago, in New York, 96% of people that are stopped are black or brown. Um, so enough depression. You guys probably already drinking now by now. So let's put some light into this training. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. So let me talk about some studies. Uh, studies that instead of looking what's wrong, look at what is strong, right? I talk about the, the 2%, 1% goes back to prison within the first month. The second third, you know, the second one third, what the, the two third, right? The one third goes within one month. The second third, if it's low level offense within a year, if it's a uh, serious level offense within three years, but always two thirds come back into prison and jails. And all the studies that Martinson looked at was the studies on the two thirds that go back, the ones that fail, right? The ones that nobody, everybody look at what was wrong. Nobody look at what was strong. Everybody look in the failures and the deficits. Nobody look at the strengths, the positive stories. So let's look at the one third that don't go back to prison. What happened to those guys? Let's look what is strong instead of what was wrong. Instead of doing relapse prevention, let's just like figure out how can we get people out of this mass, out of this rat race, right? So in 1930s, 1920s and 30s, there was this couple called the Gluex, um, Eleanor and Sheldon Gluex. They're law professors at Harvard. That's the same uh, class that I think uh, Obama maybe uh, taught, I don't know. But John, John Lobb taught that class uh, uh, years later. Uh, and Lobb worked for the Obama administration, I think in the Bureau of Justice. So in 1920s, the Glue Act, Sheldon and Leonor, uh, they did a study with juvenile delinquents, like, like Iowa's one. Uh, you know, people that got involved with, uh, with the law when they're 16, 17, 18 in 1950s, right, uh, in Boston. Great study, they talk about, and the name of the study, the book is called Unraveling Juvenile Delinquency. Well, Lobb, uh, Lobb got the same job at Harvard, the same uh, same class, and he got a hold of the studies from the GLUAC. Actually, he got a hold of the subjects, addresses and names and everything. And then he got his buddy from Samson, I believe it's North Carolina University. And the two of them, 
went back and interviewed those guys, uh, 500 people from that study, their original study. And now they're in their 70s. They're old geezers now. And they, and they studied them. What happened to them, right? From teenage to all way to the 70s. The name of the, the, the dissertation and the book is called Share Beginnings and Diverge Lives. It's actually one of the books right behind me, right there. <laughs> um, uh, so in this book, and then also uh, uh, my buddy Chad Maruna with the bad joke that I just told you, uh, he used to be in Ireland. He used to work in Belfast University. Uh, his wife is an Irish filmmaker, but he moved back to New York. Uh, he's from Boston, actually. And he's now the, uh, the uh, criminology, uh, chief of criminology at the Rutgers uh, University Department. Uh, uh, and he has a tweet feed called Criminology, hashtag Criminology, you can follow. He wrote this book called Making Good Ex-Convicts Reform and Build Their Lives. And the same concept is an LDS study, a Liverpool Desistance Study, not a Latter-day Saints, a Liverpool Desistance Study. Uh, and the uh, Maruna study, Making Good, and Lob study, they find the same thing. That, and I'm supposed to change that, that's a bad English there that they one third go curved is a D at the end of the curve there. So one third go back to prison thing, ever keep coming back to prison about a month later. The second third go back to prison after a year and two years. So what happened to that one third that don't go, go, don't go back to prison? Do they like stop committing crime? Do they go straight? No, they go curved with a D at the end they slowly start commit less crimes and the crimes start to have less, uh, they to be less, less uh, serious and more space in between them until finally they stop committing crimes or the crimes no longer the main thing in their lives. What happened to those people? Why? They have the same uh, cognitive makeup or, uh, you know, the cognitive, there's nothing in terms of cognition change. Um, you know, they have the same makeup and in terms of socioeconomic and they couldn't figure out why until they figure out when they, when the Shad, Maruna and Lob uh, let them tell their life stories, their narratives, they figure out that all these guys that made it, they had what is called uh, they had made a retroact, they went back in time and they retroactive changed the meaning of the event. Uh, for example, a woman is raped and she goes to therapy and she's talking in therapy for two, three years as a victim of rape. One day, because of the therapist, because of something happened in life or because of her own self uh, uh, growth, one day she changes and she's talking about as a survival of rape, no longer a victim of rape. The story changes where she's now a survivor of rape, not a victim of rape. It's the same rape, the same pain, the same trauma, the same woman, the same story, the same facts, nothing changed. The only thing that changed is that going back in time on that narrative, this woman did a what is called a retroactive meaning making. She went back on time and she changed the meaning of the event where it becomes kind of like a rebirth, right? So people that come out of prison, people that we serve at telecare in our AB 109 program, our core program, the people that made it, they would say things such as, I had to be a drug addict, so now I can be a drug and alcohol counselor. 
I had to see my brother die in prison in a cell next to me so now I can value my life. I had to leave my cousin in prison behind me so I can now value freedom. So this had to happen in order for this to happen. So the redemption is actually found on the story. On the own story, uh, on their own narrative. There's a there's a there's a switch there. How you make that switch? That's our job, you know. How can we provide an environment and a conversation that is non-judgmental, where individuals can actually make the switch? Uh, and that's what we're going to try to talk a little bit about it today. So the first thing is to be mindful of your relationship with each other, right? When you're meeting with someone, to be there, to be mindful, to be aware of power. So I'm going to talk a little bit about being mindful and being aware. There's a little joke of, a, are you not thinking what I'm not thinking? Um, the umbrella of the work that we've been doing in Los Angeles and in uh, around the country, many folks are doing that is like a recovery approach to justice involved mental health is behind this this uh, larger uh, theory called risk needs and respons responsivity RNR, and it comes easy to you guys the risk. The two R's will be easy for you guys in mental health because we've been doing the two R's for a long time, which is the risks and the responsivity. Risks pretty much, you know, treat people like FSP and triple R or, you know, uh, FSP and outpatient, right? FSP, higher risk, more services. Outpatient, lower risk, less services. So that's it's very basic. Responsivity is pretty much what we call uh, client center services, you know, the services is centered on a person, not on a provider. So it's always ab about how they respond to your services. Uh, the risk is the level of frequency that you see the individual. So we at telecare, we have this thing called the frost, which is like, is assess risks, um, um, the risk of reoffending, right? So, um, and so you assess the risk of uh, what's the risk of the individual be reoffending, and you assign more services if there is higher risk, right? And I'll talk about, like, for example, uh, you look at mental health risk and criminogenic risk. And I'll talk about criminogenic in a second, but mental health risk would be hearing voices, having panic attacks. Criminogenic risks would be getting involved with the gang and smoking crack. Criminogenic risks are a higher indicator of recidivism than mental health risks. The guy who is having panic attacks or the guy who is hearing voices has a less likelihood to go back to prison than the guy who is smoking crack and hanging out with the gang. So criminogenic risks uh, are important in assessing, uh, you know, uh, for recidivism more than mental health needs. The the needs or the criminogenic needs, and I'll talk a little bit more, is the is the needs that individuals will have uh, that would drive them to commit a crime. And I'll go more in detail on that. And then responsivity is how the treatment should be delivered, right? So a little more details. So risk, the level 
observer should match the risk of the guy reoffending. So if the risk is really high, like I said, first first week of treatment, really high risk, really high risk. So we see people almost every day. So high risk, you see them more often. You have more in the case loads are smaller. Low risk, you see them less. You know, so towards the end of the program, we see them once a month. Uh, intervention, target the specific needs. So if it's substance abuse is the criminogenic need, then you trigger service abuse. There was a study that was done that uh, people work only on mental health needs, such as self-esteem, and did not work in any criminogenic needs. And recidivism just increased. Meaning that if you just do self-esteem and you don't do any criminogenic stuff, you're just gonna uh, have a very confident criminal. <laughs> uh, the static factors cannot change, but the dynamic factors can. So the risk assessment, the old school risk assessment were very static. They focus on things like, let's take myself an example. My first crime, I was 15 years old. I went to jail three times. I have I have a, a history of drug use. Uh, I have a criminal history. I'm a man. I'm a male. Uh, and I'm 54. Those are always st static factors about myself. I cannot change any of that. I cannot change my age. I cannot change. I guess I can change my sex if I do a sex uh, exchange. But I cannot change my uh, the first uh, age of arrest. Those are static things that are going to be in my risk assessment. But unfortunately, I cannot change. You guys cannot change. Dynamic factors are substance use, education, how far I went into school. You know, so I have a PhD and two masters. Uh, Antisocial patterns, pro-criminal attitudes. I changed that. You know, I used to hang out with, uh, you know, people that stole. Now I hang out with people like you, mental health people. <laughs> uh, so you can change that in people. People can stop using drugs or use less drugs. People can go back to school. People can get a job. People can get married. You know, those things can happen. So. Today, the fourth and fifth generation risk assessment pay attention to dynamic factors. So dynamic factors, we can change them. Unfortunately, there's a lot of like judges in the country that pay attention only in static factors and give people more time in prison because of static factors. People get more time in prison because they're criminal history. They're hold hostage to their past. People don't, they're not given a second chance, which is messed up. Uh, uh, pass it here. So, criminogenic, what criminogenic needs, which is the stuff that is different for you guys for mental health. Uh, personality, some people are more impulsive, pleasure seeking, I, attitudes and thinking. I grew up in a third world country in a dictatorship. Uh, I was more afraid of the police than I was afraid of thieves. So, where I grew up in my neighborhood, uh, when the police came, the sirens came, my heart started beating. You know, I was afraid to get beat up by the police, not by criminals. So I ha I grew up with that attitude. Until today, I see police, my heart goes, goes, go. you know, I skip a bit. I'm more afraid of police today than I am still, you know, because of my childhood. Uh, so that's an attitude in my thinking that is slowly changing. My peers, you know, 
hang out with different people, family relationships. Most people that come out of prison, their goal in life is to reunite with their kids. And often their wives or their, uh, their ex-wives have restraining orders against them. They cannot see the kids. So their whole goal is to, uh, to get their life together to be able to see the kids. Absence of pro-social leisure activities. I mean, me growing up in a third world country, there was nothing to do but smoke weed and commit crimes. I mean, there's nothing, you know. Uh, if they have more soccer fields in Brazil, maybe, you know, that would be a pro-social criminogenic uh, thing, you know, build soccer fields and build basketball fields and things like that. Employment in school, obviously, and substance use. Uh, uh, poverty, uh, I have my kid coming in here for a second. Hey, dude, I'm doing a class right now, man. You want to come over and say hi to my people? Okay. Come over. Quick, quick, quick. This is my son, Gael. <laughs> He's doing tests today. Are you good, dude? Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching this until one o'clock, bro. So uh, where are we at? Oh, one thing I was going to say, the po poverty, money. That is the top criminogenic stuff that nobody pays attention to it. People will steal because they need money. It's obvious. People will steal because they need to eat. So you're doing an assessment in the morning at your mental health center and you ask, you know, what's your last PPD? Have you ever been molested by your neighbor? Uh, you know, are you married? Are you gay or lesbian or bi? You know, you ask all these questions, uh, you know, are you work? What's your work history? Blah, blah, blah. You know, you spend three hours with the individual and you never ask, what are you going to eat tonight? Do you, have, do you have a place to sleep tonight? Do you have money to eat tomorrow? Simple questions, right? Do you have money to eat tomorrow? That drives you to commit a crime. No money to eat. I commit a crime because I had no money to eat. And and then here's one one of the risk assessment questions I had to answer that is that if you would you steal if you're hungry? Now I I be hungry and I stole because I was hungry. Maybe maybe a white person that never been hungry would answer, no, I'll never do that. Maybe a black and brown person who have been hungry in their lives and felt that, you know, if my kid's hungry, my son's Gael, his name, by the way, if Gael was hungry uh, and I had no job, I would steal it again because I've been there. So that's why, you know, black and brown man would score high in those risk assessments because many black and brown men have been hungry and they know they will still to eat. And their responsibility, you guys know this thing, you know, like work with the strengths, you know, what's 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 strong now, what's wrong with abilities. Match intervention to the client learning style. People come out of prison with about an average of sixth grade education. Some of these techniques that you guys learn in school, like CBT, DBT, LSD, whatever you learn, <laughs> Uh, you know, some of these homeworks that people have, like, you know, go home and write a journal and then write this and then do this and answer this, you know, like a lot of these guys don't know how to read or write, you know. When I moved to this country, I didn't spoke English. I used to go to parties and people would like talk to me, like girls would talk to me like all night long and I would just smile like, <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. I didn't know a word what they're saying. I was just smiling and going along with it. A lot of clients who just go and smile and go along with your treatment plan. They sometimes cannot read it, sometimes cannot understand it. So, you know, 
make sure that you treat their I want a break. I'll put a, our first clients. They would not talk. They're not right. They don't do any of the stuff. And then I realized they would like they would rap during the break, you know, in the kitchen. So I got the four first clients and I put them together and we did a hip hop video. They rap about their lives during the break. I'll play it for you guys. So match their style, their style learning. All right. It's 11.15. Oh, good. We're still 15 minutes ahead. Awesome, awesome. So uh, this guy, uh, Johan Hari, he's an Australian thing. I don't know where he's from. He has like an English accent, maybe South Africa. I don't know. You guys tell me. Uh, I, he's a journalist, famous guy now. He wrote this amazing book called uh, Scream, which is about drug addiction. I think he got into drug addiction because his boyfriend or his husband, uh, someone, someone, someone close to him was addicted and some family members were addicted and he got into this just to kind of help someone that he loved and then he figured out for all of us that everything that we know about addiction is wrong um so i'm gonna give a joe hunt a chance my name to explain and i i don't have the the free free of advertising on youtube so you have to put up with the uh with the advertisement before. Oh, I can skip ads there. I mute myself. Is it trying to wake up one of Someone write in the, in the comments that you're hearing and you're seeing, okay. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I was just a little kid, so I didn't really understand why. But as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family, including later cocaine addiction. I've been thinking about it a lot lately, partly because it's now exactly 100 years since drugs were first banned in the United States and Britain, and we then imposed that on the rest of the world. It's a century since we made this really fateful decision to take addicts and punish them and make them suffer because we believe that would deter them, it would give them an incentive to stop. And a few years ago, I was looking at some of the addicts in my life who I love and trying to figure out if there was some way to help them. And I realized there were loads of incredibly basic questions I just didn't know the answer to. Like, what really causes addiction? Uh, why do we carry on with this approach that doesn't seem to be working? And is there a better way out there that we could try instead? So I read loads of stuff about it, and I couldn't really find the answers I was looking for. So I thought, OK, I'll go and sit with different people around the world who've lived this and studied this and talk to them and see if I can learn from them. And I ended up, I didn't realize I would end up going over 30,000 miles at the start, but I ended up going and meeting loads of different people, from a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see if they like them. Um, <laughs> It turns out they do, but only in very specific circumstances. To, to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs, from cannabis to crack, Portugal. And the thing I realized that really blew my mind is, almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. And if we start to absorb the new evidence about addiction, I think we're going to have to change a lot more than our drug policies. But let's start with what we think we know, what I thought I know, right? Let's think about this middle row here, right? Imagine all of you, for 20 days now, went off and used heroin three times a day. 
Some of you look a little bit more enthusiastic than others at this prospect. Um, the, don't worry, it's just a thought experiment. Imagine you did that, right? What, do we, what would happen? Now, we have a story about what would happen that we've been told for a century. We think because there are chemical hooks in heroin, as you took it for a while, your body would become dependent on those hooks, you'd start to physically need them, and at the end of those 20 days, you'd all be heroin addicts, right? That's what I thought. First thing that alerted me to the fact something not right with this story is when it was explained to me, if I step out of this TED Talk today and I get hit by a car and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's actually much better heroin than you're ever going to buy on the streets because the stuff you buy from a drug dealer is contaminated, actually very little of it is heroin, whereas the stuff you get from the doctor is medically pure. And you'll be given it for quite a long period of time. There are loads of people in this room who may not realize that you've taken quite a lot of heroin, right? Uh, and, for, and anyone watching this anywhere in the world, this is happening. And if what we believe about addiction is right, those people are exposed to all those chemical hooks. What should happen? They should become addicts. This has been studied really carefully. It doesn't happen. You will have noticed if your grandmother had a hip replacement, she didn't come out as a junkie. <laughs> and when I learned this, it just seemed so weird to me, so contrary to everything I'd been told, everything I thought I knew, I just thought it couldn't be right. Until I went and met a man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver, who carried out an incredible experiment that I think really helps us to understand this issue. Professor Alexander explained to me, the idea of addiction we've all got in our heads, that story, comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You can do them tonight when you go home if you feel a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's how we think it works. In the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and he looks at this experiment and he noticed something. He said, ah, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try something a bit different. So Professor Alexander built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of tunnels. Crucially, they've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. You go from almost 100% overdose when they're isolated to 0% overdose when they have happy and connected lives. Now, when we first saw this, Professor Alexander thought, you know, maybe this is just a thing about rats. They're quite different to us. You know, not, maybe not as different as we'd like, but, you know. Um, But fortunately, there was a human experiment into the exact same principle happening at the exact same time. It was called the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, 20% of all American troops were using loads of heroin. And uh, if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really worried because they thought, my God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war ends. It made total sense. Now, those soldiers who were using loads of heroin were followed home. The archives of general psychiatry did a really detailed study. And what happened to them? It turns out they didn't go to rehab. They didn't go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped. Now, if you believe the story about chemical hooks, that makes absolutely no sense. But Professor Alexander began to think there might be a different story about addiction. He said, what if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? 
What if addiction is an adaptation to your environment? Looking at this, there was another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands who said maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Human beings have a natural and innate need to bond, and when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, that might be cannabis. But you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. And I think, you know, at first I found this quite a difficult thing to get my head round. But one way to help me to think about it is, and I can see, you know, I've got over by my seat there a bottle of water, right? I'm looking at lots of you, and lots of you have bottles of water with you, right? Forget drugs, forget the drug war. Totally legally, all of those bottles of water could be bottles of vodka, right? We could all be getting drunk, I might, after this.、Um, and But we're not, right? Now, because you've been able to afford the approximately a gazillion pounds that it costs to get into a TED talk, I'm guessing you guys could afford to be drinking vodka for the next six months. You wouldn't end up homeless. You're not going to do that. And the reason you're not going to do that is not because anyone's stopping you. It's because you've got bonds and connections that you want to be present for. You've got work you love. You've got people you love. You've got healthy relationships. And a core part of addiction. I came to think, and I believe the evidence suggests, is about not being able to bear to be present in your life. Now, this has really significant implications. The most obvious implications are for the war on drugs, right? In Arizona, I went out with a group of women who were made to wear T-shirts saying I was a drug addict and go out on chain gangs and dig graves while members of the public could jeer at them. And when those women get out of prison, they're going to have criminal records that mean they'll never work in the legal economy again. Now that's a very extreme example, obviously in the case of the chain gang, but actually almost everywhere in the world we treat addicts to some degree like that. We punish them, we shame them, we give them criminal records, we put barriers between them reconnecting. There was a doctor in Canada,、uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, an amazing man, who said to me, "If you wanted to design a system that would make addiction worse, you would design that system." Now. There's a place that decided to do the exact opposite, and I went there to see how it worked. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. One percent of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And every year they tried the American way more and more. They punished people and stigmatized them and shamed them more. And every year the problem got worse. And one day the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said, "Look." We can't go on with a country where we're having ever more people becoming heroin addicts. Let's set up a panel of scientists and doctors to figure out. What would genuinely solve the problem? And they set a panel led by an amazing man called Dr. Huang Gulao to look at all this new evidence. And they came back, and they said, decriminalise all drugs from cannabis to crack. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on cutting addicts off, on disconnecting them, and spend it instead on reconnecting them with the society. And that's not—it's interesting. That's not really what we think of. What they did wasn't really what we think of as drug treatment in the United States and Britain. So they do do residential rehab, they do do psychological therapy that does have some value. But the biggest thing they did was the complete opposite of what we do: a massive program of job creation for addicts and micro loans for addicts to set up small businesses. So say you used to be a mechanic. When you're ready, they go to a garage and they'll say, "If you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages." The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. And when I went and met the addicts in Portugal, it's fascinating. What they said is, as they rediscovered purpose, they rediscovered bonds and relationships with the wider society. It'll be 
15 years this year since that experiment began, and the results are in. Injecting drug users down in Portugal, according to the British Journal of Criminology, by 50%, 50%. Overdoses massively down. HIV is massively down among addicts. Uh, addiction in every study is significantly down. One of the ways you know it's worked so well is that almost nobody in Portugal wants to go back to the old system. Now that's the kind of political implications. I actually think there's a layer of implications to all this research below that. You know. We live in a culture where people feel really increasingly vulnerable to all sorts of addictions, whether it's to their smartphones or to shopping or to eating. You know, before these talks began, you guys know this, that uh, we were told we weren't allowed to have our smartphones on. And I have to say, a lot of you looked an awful lot like addicts who were being told their dealer was going to be unavailable for the next couple of hours. And, you know, a lot of us feel like that. And it might sound weird to say, oh, you know, I've been talking about how disconnection is a major driver of addiction. But weird to say it's growing because you think, well, we're the most connected society there's ever been, surely. But I increasingly began to think that the connection we have, the connections we have, we think we have, are like a kind of parody of human connection. If you have a crisis in your life, you'll notice something. It won't be your Twitter followers who come to sit with you. It won't be your Facebook friends who help you turn it round. It'll be your flesh and blood friends who you have deep and nuanced and textured face-to-face -face relationships with. And I think there's a, there's a study I learned about from Bill McKibben, the environmental writer, I think tells us a lot about this. There's a, it looked at the number of close friends the average American believes they can call on in a crisis. That number has been declining steadily since the 1950s. The amount of floor space an individual has in their home has been steadily increasing. And I think that's like a metaphor for the choice we've made as a culture, right? We've traded floor space for friends, we've traded stuff for connections, and the result is that we are one of the loneliest societies there has ever been. And yet Bruce Alexander, the guy who did the Rat Park experiment, says, we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery, and it's right to talk about that, but we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something's gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. And we created a society where, for a lot of us, life looks a whole lot more like that isolated cage and a whole lot less like Rat Park. But if I'm honest, this isn't why I went into it, right? I didn't go in to discover the political stuff, the social stuff. I wanted to know how to help the people I love. And when I came back from this long journey and I'd learned all this, I looked at the addicts in my life, and if, you know, if you're really candid, it's, it's hard loving an addict, and there's going to be lots of people who know in this room you're angry a lot of the time. And um, I think one of the reasons why this debate is so charged is because it runs through the heart of each of us, right? Everyone has a bit of them that looks at an addict and thinks, I wish someone would just stop you. And the kind of script we're told for how to deal with the addicts in our lives is typified by, I think, by the reality show Intervention. If you guys haven't seen it, I think everything in our lives is typified by reality TV, but that's another, that's another TED talk. Um, uh, if you've never seen the show Intervention, it's a pretty simple premise. You get an addict, all the people in their life, gather them together, and say, if you don't shape up, they confront them with what they're doing, and they say, if you don't shape up, we're going to cut you off, right? So what they do is they take the connection to the addict and they threaten it. They make it contingent on the addict behaving the way they want. Um, and I began to think, I began to see why that approach doesn't work. And I began to think that almost that's like the importing of the logic of the drug war into our private lives. So I was thinking, well, how can I be Portuguese, right? And what I try to do now, and I can't tell you I do it consistently, and I can't tell you it's easy, is to say to the addicts in my life that I want to deepen the connection with them, to say to them, I love you whether you're using or you're not, I love you whatever state you're in, and if you need me, I'll come and sit with you. 
because I love you and I don't want you to be alone or to feel alone. And I think the core of that message, you're not alone, we love you, has to be at every level of how we respond to addicts, socially, politically and individually. For a hundred years now, we've been singing war songs about addicts. I think all along we should have been singing love songs to them because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Thank you. Hello, hello. Can you guys hear me? All right. One thing I want to correct him, or he doesn't know this, but you know this, that he thinks intervention is a reality TV show. In reality, the intervention reality TV show is based on a real intervention, a real mental health approach. I did it myself. Maybe some of you have done this. It's based on the AA uh, 12 steps, which is called the intervention, right? So I done this where the I I was the therapist or the case you know the case manager, the family, everybody meets with the person and they corner them. You just stop using, stop drinking, or you out of here, or you know we're gonna cut the connection with you. Uh, mental health places do that still today. Well, they go in, the whole team goes in and does an intervention with the guy who's like drinking or using. It's like everybody like, you either do or you water the program or you water here or you water the house or, you know. Uh, we do that today. It's not a reality TV show. It's actually a very used intervention today. And as Hari just said, it's actually the opposite of what you should be doing. <laughs> We're doing the wrong thing. Because we, we understand addiction completely wrong, we deal with addiction completely wrong, and it's crazy. So how do you talk about love, right? I, I was a psychoanalyst in my previous life. I actually did psych, uh, psychoanalysis with children. And studying Freud and studying psychoanalysis, uh, the idea of transference and counter-transference, uh, transference actually is love, right? So it comes from Plato, uh, the platonic idea of love. Uh, that's where Freud got the idea of uh, transference. So transference is always a love for an, a love for another human being, right? It's 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 a relational thing. Uh, so when he talks about instead of singing songs of hate, we should be singing songs of love. Uh, the translation of that is means instead of putting them in prison, we should be treating them, right? Uh, any other comments there? Also, Harman, I mean, this is, Hari pretty much is explaining to you guys uh, harm reduction in a non-psycholingual way. Uh, you know, so the idea that if someone is using drugs, it's not that, you know, you're going to say, and they call you and you're going to say, well, you know, get cleanness over and then call me when you're done. You know, that's usually the approach, right? Or go get clean and sober, and then you clean and sober, come back to treatment, um, which is a form of hate, right? Because it's it's kind of us like thinking, you know, I cannot change, you know, like the same thing he was saying. So um, the idea is that you're not gonna, you know, bail the person out, but you be there with them. Someone call you, they're homeless. You're not gonna say, hey, good luck, buddy. You know, you blow all your money on drugs, so good luck. You might not bail them out and put them in a motel, but you go with them. You sit with them and say, oh, let's, call, let's call shelters together. You know, someone is using, you're not going to say, good luck, buddy. You're going to be there with them. 
in their withdrawal as they're using. I met with people right after they smoke crack. I met with people in their homes with the crack pipes right there on the table. Uh, I met with people while they're using, I mean, not using in front of me. I asked them, please don't use in front of me. But I met with people right after they're using. I met them at the bottom. Uh, it means be with them and love them in their worst time. Um, let me see just what is next. I think if you guys, uh, uh, if you have anything you want to share. Let me uh, go back to sharing because I think we're getting close to a break. All right, I'll uh, get you guys back. I like to see people's faces. There you go. And you guys can see the screen, right? All right, Allison. I'll use you, Allison, as my uh, thermometer. Uh, okay. So um, now I'm going to talk a little bit about the telecare stuff that we're doing. Uh, uh, you know, the reason I got this gig here with you guys <laughs> is because telecare has been using this, uh, what we call the recovery center clinical system, RCCS. And that's our approach for mental illness in general for our, our programs. But so I'm going to talk with you guys about the RCCS in related to just involved mental health. So we have pretty much two parts in our RCCS in our clinical systems. One is called the culture and the other one is called the conversations. The conversations is what you guys call uh, interventions. Is the, what do you do with the members? With the, we call members, some people call clients, patients. We don't call it, that's a bad one. But, uh, you know, customers. Uh, this training, I'm gonna talk more about the culture part because the culture is actually the primary intervention. And the culture is independent of the client. The culture has to do with the relationship between you guys among each other at the office if you are co-workers. So the culture has more to do with the office culture, with the workers culture, uh, than with the client. I mean, the client's part of that, but the culture uh, uh, is about awareness, is about being mindful of things. Conversations are more like specific interventions. So, uh, so in terms of culture, there's these five awarenesses. One is awareness of uniqueness. I have a hard time with that word. I always think about the backyard against Uniqua. I don't know if you guys, anybody's running with the backyard against. <laughs> um, uh, uniqueness. Um, uh, power, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about power today because power is a big one for just involved mental health. Be aware of power. Be aware of judgments they make. Not that you're gonna be non-judgmental. Nobody's Mother Teresa except for Mother Teresa. So you are gonna make judgments. It's just the idea of being uh, being aware of your judgments. Motivation, which is not a static thing. You just can people get motivated or they are motivated, you know, things are motivating, but nobody's like static motivated. And then respect, which is a simple but difficult one. Respect is like the intervention, the outcome of respect is dignity. So you treat people with respect, you increase their dignity. So all those five things are 
awarenesses that we talk about. And we think that the culture is primary intervention, meaning that some places you don't even need to know interventions. Some places you don't need to get your, I mean, go ahead and get your degree, get your PhD, your uh, LCSW, your MFT, your LSD, or whatever you get. Uh, learn your EBPs, you know, learn all your evidence-based practice and all that. Learn all that stuff, that's good. But if you don't have a culture, if you don't have an alliance, if you don't have a connection, none of that stuff's gonna work. So conversations are good too, you know, but you need to have a, a, a starting point. Uh, and it's now time for a short break. Uh, so Gene, tell me, how long is the break? Are you there? I'll say, let's take, uh, I'll play this video. So how long is this video? It's three minutes. So I'll play this video twice six seven so we about seven let's let's give let's let's perfect all right so i started the video you can watch it you can go do your uh uh smoke your cancer stick if that's what you do or you i mean cigarettes or you can uh or you can go to the restroom hopefully there's not a line in your home restroom and here we go all right what, were you guys hearing that let me see. Uh, so I'm going to play twice. This is a video of our first, I, I mentioned to you guys, our first uh, four AB109 folks. Uh, they didn't want to talk. They didn't want to do any of the exercise. So we decided to do a hip hop video. And mm -hmm. they talk about AB109. Here we go. So yeah, the, the, the video there, um, they asked to uh, film, I think that's the Hollywood Cemetery. I'm not sure. But um they, that's the cemetery where uh, some of their uh, uh, brothers and cousins were buried. So they went into the video there. Also, um, one of the guys in the video has a uh, very strong speech impediment where he cannot, when he talks, he has like this heavy uh, tick. And, uh, but when he raps, uh, it's gone. We also did, uh, you know, the beginners in Chamorro, which is a Guan language. And then uh, we actually did the videos twice as long. We did a second part in Spanish, but because the singer is, is Cuban, but we ran out of money, so we couldn't produce the second part. <laughs> uh, so a quick question and answer here. It's just to see, uh, just to get you guys going. Let's see. Uh, um, See how you do this. So oh. I can see uh, I can see some people. That, oh, I can see a lot of people. So uh, uh, just like put your thumbs up on the screen like this if it's yes. Put your thumbs down if it's a no. Okay. I'm going to ask a few questions just for you to, to get going. So thumbs up, yes. Thumbs down, no. All right. Um, let me ask this question. Uh, did uh, who, yes, if you had, uh, if you, um, had a meal with your mom yesterday? Yes or no? 
Did you have a meal with your mom yesterday? All right. Good. That's a good warm up question. All right. Uh, have you ever um, got a speeding ticket? Oh, man, some good drivers there, Chris. <laughs> All right. Uh, anybody has tattoos, visible or not visible? All right, tattoos. All right, okay. Does anybody here uh, ever kiss someone they didn't like it? Just kind of like felt pressure to kiss the person or the person started kissing you and you just went along with it. Anybody kiss someone they didn't like it? Oh, man. Everybody. <laughs> All right. Okay. Anybody here has ever been bullied in school or in life? Well, everybody. Nice. Well, not nice to be bullied, but nice that everybody had that experience. Anybody, uh, any, ever, anybody here, put your thumbs up if you spend a night in the hospital. Even yourself or someone that you love, you spend overnight in the hospital. Ooh, almost everybody. Just, uh, thumbs up if you ever walk into a place and you had this feeling that you didn't belong. I do not belong here. What's that feeling a little bit? The feeling of not belonging or the feeling in being in, I was going to ask jail, but I'm not. Uh, there was another question too that I forgot to ask is like, if you've ever uh, took uh, took anything home from work, but is, since you guys are not out in a, this is not a really a work thing, but have you ever took a pen or a post-it note home? And, but the idea here is that that feeling, you know, the, that is the connection feeling, right? I mean, I have to say, when I look at and he has tattoos, and I have tattoos. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's a uh, uh, is, is, is the feeling of not belonging, is the feeling of being bullied, is the feeling of powerless, is the feeling of being impatient and cannot get out, the feeling of being in jail, is that feeling that you're gonna make a connection with someone else. Um, that's why somewhat cultural matching works. Gay and lesbian folks feel more comfortable with gay and lesbian therapists. People coming out of prison, they feel more comfortable with people that have been in prison. Some of our program, like one of our RAB online program, for example, 100% of the staff are peers. They either have a mental illness themselves, or they've been addicted themselves, or they've been in prison themselves, or they've been homeless themselves. Everybody in the program, all the staff have an experience, a lived experience, makes a quick connection, right? I mean, sometimes you just look at the person and make a connection. Um, we would judge people. We judge people by its cover, right? So you look at me and like, if you look at me in the street going out and you know, walking my dog, you think I got, you think I, I don't teach just as involved mental health, that you think that I actually got out of prison just like a few days ago. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, we judge people, but uh, at the same time, there's some things that makes a quick connection with it. Malcolm Gladwell, it's a great writer, talks about this. Um, I'm still sharing, right? And I'm saying, okay, so let me move on. Okay, so let's talk about mental illness and as a parallel to being in prison, pre-in-jail for the first time. 
So if one day a doctor came over and give like a magic pill to like this, this blue and red pill that you take and then poof, all the symptoms are gone. Voices are gone. Everything's gone. Next morning, all right, go back to life. Like we say to homeless people on the, on the street, right? They're all dirty and smelly and we say, go, go get a job, right? <laughs> what is the illness and what's the disability, right? For me able to do anything. Because of the voices? No. It's because of the way we treat you. The good news is that all the undoing, all the things that we did can be undone. And I say us because a iatrogenic effect of treatment of a bad mental health treatment, and we do, most of us do bad mental health treatment, you know, is the loss of abilities because we take over, right? We see the side effect of uh, chronic uh, mental illness in old school psychotropic medications like Haldol and Thorazine, you know, you see people with the, with the rolling joints, hands, you know, we see people with the Thorazine shuffle, we see people like with the tongue, with the neck, you know, uh, the physical side effect of antipsychotic medication is like so, you know, horrible that you pay attention to that, but we don't look at uh, what is behind that, uh, the institutionalization, the, the psychological effect of traditional mental health treatment, where people pretty much lose their hopes and dreams. They lose their life, you know, their life is just sitting you know, in the old days, was sitting in the boarding care, watching Oprah, smoking cigarettes, and drinking Coke. That's that's the life. I mean, that's not a life. That's a death sentence, right? But uh, people have the ability to spring back and successfully adapt to uh, to life. And one of the things is we can do that by providing a program culture where people will be able to awake, right? And we do that is by what we call touch points. And the program environment and through knowledge and information. In Spanish, we say educación es poder, education is power, right? Um, so I talk about the five awareness power, respect, judgment, uh, uniqueness, and motivation. Now, from everything, these three hours that we are together, if you have to remember one thing, Remember this, the best approach, if you're going to do an approach, is to listen. Listen with curiosity and listen with a desire to understand. So I've been doing this for 33 years. I have to say, I have a hard time. I became good at listening after many years. And then I became good at listening with curiosity. And I still struggle with desire to understand. Because after all the school and the books that I read, I have tons of books like that. I've been reading books since I was a kid. I read a lot of theories. I learned a lot of stuff. I'm like a clinician, right? I'm watching TV and I'm diagnosing people. Ah, personality disorder. Ah, you know, so I, I have a hard time with curiosity, with a desire to understand because I have a desire to explain. And I think a lot of you guys might be in that situation. So I listen, I have curiosity, but often I have the explanation already there, you know, before I'm listening to the story. And that's our problem as clinicians. We need to leave the vacuum. We need to leave the unknown, unknown. Like cultural, you know, cultural competence, which is a fallacy. Nobody's competent in their own cultures, especially other people's cultures. 
you know, cultural humility is about sitting with someone from a different culture, from a different race, from a different color, from a different religion, and do not fill up the space with like, you know, oh, I know this guy. Oh, Brazilian. Oh, yeah. You must uh, be a good soccer player. No, I, I am a horrible soccer player. Oh, yeah, Bossa Nova. And uh, I hate that shit. I like hip hop and I like heavy metal. Uh, oh, you know, like, uh, so we judge people and that's okay. But be able to see, you know, Confucius says wisdom is to not know something and sit with that not knowledge. That's wisdom. Be able to meet someone, but we are too narrow. We are human beings are just too anxious. So when we meet someone, you know, since cave times, we need to like put, you know, people in boxes so we get a little more calm, right? Oh, I know this person, you know, just by judging by the skin, by by the way they talk, by the way they look. So power. Power is important awareness. So, you know, in English, you say, don't ask a fish to describe water, right? I think the water got cut off down there. Uh, I never understood that until recently. Okay, so, you know, like Dory goes to Nemo and say, hey, Nemo, tell me about water. And Nemo's like, I don't know. Water is everything, so water is nothing, right? You take Nemo out of the water, all Nemo will talk about is water. So when you emerge on it, you don't see it. Power is invisible to those who have it. That's why some white people sometimes they say, oh, I don't see color, you know, everybody's the same. And I'm thinking, you know, my mom, I have an uncle who says that, oh, everybody's the same, I don't see color. And my mom's like, racist, you know? So maybe he's not racist, maybe he really does not see color, you know? Because when you have power, you don't see the power. White privilege is invisible to white people. You know, you guys met my son, Gael. He's like, you know, he's like almost blonde with long, you know, blonde hair and white kid. I, you know, I, when I saw Obama talking on TV about, you know, the conversation that black parents, black father have with black boys at a certain age, you know, don't do certain things, you know, when you walk on the street, don't do this, don't do that. I like, oh my God, I don't have to have the conversation with Gael because Gael, you know, they look at him, they see a white kid, right? He can run in a hoodie. Nobody's going to shoot him. And when I had that realization, I realized, shit, that's part of that I have that I don't see it. But everybody needs power, especially in California, you know, the land of the Kardashians. I don't know what the woman or those women have, but like they have power. Everybody wants a little bit of power, right? Everybody needs power. Everybody needs to feel powerful. So if you don't get power, you're gonna, you're gonna, if you don't get power, you figure out a way to get it. Um, so if you're in prison or you're in a locked psych hospital, you have no power, or if you're in conservatorship, right? Conservatorship, LPS conservatorship is actually 12 powers. And they check, like, you know, you don't have this power, you don't have this power. You cannot vote, you cannot ride, you cannot drive a car, you cannot, you know, live independent, you know, there's 12 powers. You, you cannot have power over your medical stuff, you know. Um, uh, 
and if you're in prison or in jail, you don't have power. You cannot decide that oh, I don't want to. I don't want to shower for a week. Oh, I want to have steak and lobster for breakfast every day. Oh, I want to just like sleep during the day and stay awake during the night. You know, if you're in a locked psych facility, nah. You got shower every day. You have group from one to three. You have you know eat this time and got no power. I accept you do have power. You have the most primitive type of powers. You can tell me I have to go to group, but I can punch you in the face. You can tell me I have to take my meds, but I can call you all kind of names that you never heard before. You can tell me I cannot have steak for breakfast, but I can spit in your face. Uh, in prison, there's, a, there's this name for guessers. You know, a guesser is someone that either uh, shits or pees in a container and throws shit or pee in the guards. That's a guesser. And some of the referrals you might get, we might say between parentheses, guesser. Uh, so that's one type of power. And if you're not in prison, if you're in a community, if you get released from prison, you get released from jail downtown, uh, you know, there's a there's a dude selling power down the street. It comes in all kinds of forms. You can snore it, you can smoke it, you can drink it, you can shoot it up. You got a lot of power, man. After three shots of tequila, man, I feel powerful. After a little, you know, just a little, a little fix, damn, I feel powerful. It goes down later, right? And then I get more. So bogus power, violence and drugs are bogus power. There are a way for us to get power. Everybody needs power. So if I cannot get authentic power, I'm going to get bullshit power. So our job as mental health folks, we think this kumbaya kind of thing, like, hey, let's make everybody powerful bullshit. You're not going to make people powerful. You're not going to empower people because there's some power people can't have themselves. What you have to do is make power visible. If you make power visible, people can empower themselves. I might have the power to stop uh, drinking or I might have the power to stop shooting up drugs, but I do not have the power to go visit my kids because my wife has a restraining order against me. And if I go within 200 meters to my kids, I go back to prison. I might have the power to move from uh, uh, Long Beach to uh, Pasadena, but I don't have the power to go back to Saratoga because that's against my uh, probation. There will be a probation violation. So where do I have power and where do where I don't? Here's a way that we mental health people steal power from people with words. You know, if I enjoy to smoke weed, and my life's fine, but I just like to smoke weed. If I meet one of you guys and you interview me for an assessment, I'll be a druggie or an addict. I swear, in Brazil, we drink beer like at the clinical meetings and the clinics in the 80s, uh, the child clinic. Uh, at 6 o'clock, we order beer and pizza, and we drink beer inside the clinic. <laughs> we drink beer. Everybody would be smoking cigarettes and drinking beer in a clinical meeting. <laughs> 
uh, I moved to the United States, you know, like I was doing this, someone did this assessment. This guy said, yeah, I drink a beer every other day, you know, the person put alcohol dependence, like, Holy shit. and the guy was my roommate and we went home and he, he drink a beer every day. And it was like, so you alcohol dependent too then, uh, you know, there's this thing <laughs> like, so the drug policy Alliance, they have this shirt right here that I show you, you know, no more drug policy. They also have another shirt that says, uh, uh, drug addicts are, no, druggies are awesome. <laughs> so we have this idea that people that use drugs are bad people. <laughs> you know? So how about I did that? Some, some people that use drugs are awesome people. Uh, manipulative. That's, a lot, that's one that we put. Diagnosis being identity, you know, like like we said, like I said before, you know, schizophrenic, you know. Uh, so your, if your identity is your diagnosis, then your life is different. So, you know, uh, it's, it's not schizophrenic. She might have schizophrenia, like she has brown eyes, that she has a blue Toyota, like she has asthma, like she has a dog, you know. Schizophrenia is something that she has, like a dog, not something she is. Uh, I love the borderline thing. In Brazil, I was a psychologist. I never seen anybody with borderline personality disorder ever. I moved to the United States. I work in San Diego in a crisis center. There was 16 people in a crisis center. Eight of them were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I was like, what the hell? It's like the water in San Diego maybe gives you borderline personality disorder. And then I went, I didn't speak English very well. So I was an overnighter, right? So I read charts and I did bad checks because uh, my English was horrible. So I, I, I read charts and I was reading these charts like none of these people have any borderline personality disorder symptoms. Why are they borderline personality disorder? And then I realized during the daytime they were, they were just obnoxious people and people would just put them borderline personality disorder because they didn't want to deal with them. So when there was clinical discussion, instead of discussing their clinical issues, people would say, ah, she's just borderline. And that was the end of the discussion. It was kind of like, ah, I don't want to talk about her. I'm like, oh, that's a slang for like, I don't want to deal with it. It's not really a, it's not really a diagnosis. Uh, um, lack of insight. That's like a. I remember a South Park when uh, a South Park. Uh, I think it's Cartman or one of them has that shirt that says "I'm with stupid." <laughs> it's like a lack of insight is just a pretty much a, a political correct way to say "Ah, he's stupid" or "She's stupid." Uh, mad seeking, passive aggressive. The uh, the manipulative, if you are a politician, that's like you do well in life. So I talk about the culture and ju so judgment is another one, an another big one. So LBC in the house, uh, Snoop Lion here. And uh, so if I don't know, I'm, I just arrived to this country today. I've never seen these two people. I see this blonde woman, she looks like a housewife, maybe from Orange County. If anybody's a housewife from Orange County, please don't be offended. But as an immigrant man, that's how I would judge right away. And I, I see a, a black dude with the, what, those things are not dry what are they called? Corn something? Corn hose, corn rose, corn rose. Uh, so I see these two guys that are making brownies. By the way, this is the most watched Food Network episode in the street. And I don't think they're making brownies. I think they're making uh, velvet, that velvet one. But anyhow, uh, 
so we make judgments, right? We all make judgments. Um, and like I said, you're not Mother Teresa, you're gonna make judgments. The idea is not, not to be judgmental. The idea is be aware of the judgments you make. Be aware that you keep making judgments. You are making judgments right now on me. Uh, just by the way I talk, by what I'm saying. Uh, just be aware of that. When you meet a client, be aware. And the power thing that I just talked about, on a situation between you and a client, you would want powerful. You would want they cannot see the power you have. The client is the powerless. That's why Black Lives Matter movement is by black folks. You need to be black to realize. You had to be black in the 60s to realize the civil rights. I mean, you had to have the experience, right? So right now, you have to have the members, the clients are the one when they come to your program, they're the one powerless. They're the one that can see how the program is messing up. Because your program has all these power things, you know, like bathrooms only for staff. Clients cannot drink coffee. You cannot come to my program if you're high or drunk. Although some of the staff are more obnoxious than some high and drunk clients. <laughs> Sorry, uh, you know, you have all these rules that are like sometimes some has make no sense because according to Johan that we just listened to, everything you know about addiction and a lot of stuff you know about recovery is wrong. Uh, so yeah, we make judgments. So each conversation that we have is uh, a conversation that will help in her recovery journey. One conversation that we do often, one of the first conversations we have is about exploring individual's identity. So the hip hop video that I show you, it was an identity exercise. Uh, we do this like pies, identity pies, where people write down, you know, like I, I'm like a quarter Latino, I'm a quarter musician, I'm a quarter father, you know. And people do that like when they're in a hospital and they put like, I'm a quarter mental health patient, I'm a quarter hopeless, I'm a quarter suicidal. And then they do that throughout treatment when slowly the negative stuff disappears and the, and the good stuff starts to pop up. I'm a, I'm a quarter sister, I'm a quarter, uh, 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 you know, a church goer, I'm a quarter, you know. It's also cool because when I work with homeless people, they would identify themselves different than we identify them. Like I worked with this lady for 10 years, She's, she was homeless. And she did not call herself homeless. She called herself outdoor lover. That's our definition of homeless. It was outdoor lover. And she had a connection with a cat. And the reason that she never went to housing is because no place would take her with a cat. So um, that's another thing with homeless folks, dogs and cats. Sometimes like their identities kind of mesh with their, with their animal. So who the hell is Andrea? is the first conversation. That conversation is the vehicle, the vessel, how we're gonna go to Italy. So let's say an airplane. So the conversation about identity is the airplane that is gonna get Andrea from here to Italy. Now, it's not a straight flight. She's gonna have to fly to Atlanta and then New York, then London. And so let's start the trip. The energy, the uh, gasoline, or hopefully something with less carbon imprint, would be the way to get her there. Is the energy, is the hope, is the energy, source of energy to get her to Italy, to recovery. 
So conversation about awakening hope. Many people with serious mental illness, they it's not that they don't have hope. They're, the muscle that hopes becomes a trophy because they were never able to hope. They, they were never, it's that they don't have hopes and dreams. Their hope for older adults, for example, their hopes and dreams got foreclosed on them. Foreclosure is like when you lose something that you actually never had it. You know, so uh, they never ask, what do you want? What is your really desire? Case managers and the programs always decide things for them. So they just lost their hope. So awake the hope, you know. Oliver Sacks has this great book called Awakening, which he made it into a movie with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams called Awakening, which is Robert Sacks uh, pretty much, Oliver Sacks pretty much working with a patient that has been in catatonic state for like years and has awake to life, you know. The concept of awakening someone to life. And many of people with serious mental illness, that liked, that pilot, uh, you might have to carry that for them until they're ready to take it back. Uh, getting to Italy is going to be a lot of obstacles. You're going to have to do a, a COVID test like three days before you go, and then you COVID test coming back, and you know, uh, you're gonna have to get a visa. There's gonna be all this kind of a, uh, you know, it's gonna be, well, first, you need to make sure that you're going towards Italy, right? You could go, you could go towards Alaska by mistake, or you know. So the steering mechanism is the choices that you're gonna make, making choices. And we're gonna teach you choice making skills. Not to make not to make good choices, but choice making skills. Because like I was doing show is the history of disability just a little bit before. If we start making choices for you because we want you to make good choices, you're gonna lose choice making skills. And how you learn choice making skills is by screwing up. We all screwed up. If you don't let the person screw it up, they're not gonna learn. So, you know. You ask, how do you learn choice? How you learn to make good choices? Experience. And how you get experience by making bad choices. Yeah. And then staying on course, harm reduction. John Hardy talk, you know, is not about stopping using drugs. It's about connections, right? It's not about do this, do that. It's about connecting with individuals. So reducing harm is avoiding obstacles to this trip. You know, getting your COVID test, getting all this stuff to go to Italy. You know, when I drive around and I messed up and there's an obstacle and I make a wrong choice and I exit in the wrong street or I miss the exit, there's this like soothing voice of a woman in my car that says, uh, recalculating. That's <laughs> my GPS system. Recalculating. Wouldn't it be nice if life, every time you screw up, life would just freeze and then like recalculating you know <laughs> that would be nice so the recalculating is the making choices and reducing harm and then finally i don't know if you're going to italy with someone if you're gonna hook up with an italian uh, but we are social animals we always have someone in our life bill anthony which is the godfather of recovery says that for every recovery journey there's always someone there with you and it's often not a mental health person it's often a parent a loved one and like i said for homeless folks it's sometimes a dog i work with this guy who was dying on the street 
and I couldn't find him a housing place that would take it with his dog. And his doctor said, if you stay in the streets, you're gonna die in two, three months. You need to go to a place. And we found a place, but couldn't take the dog. And he said, I'll rather stay in the streets. So he stayed on the streets. And then we finally got a place for him, section eight, homeless section eight. And he brought the dog in, but it was a little too late. He lived for about two, two weeks and then he died. Uh, I met with him. I used to work with the older adults. I did a lot of studies in death and dying. So I used to interview people about their dying and what they want to for their death and ceremonies and all that. And I asked him, if you could make the choice again, would you choose to go to a housing and live for another couple of years? And he said, no, I would make the same choice. I'd rather leave three months with my dog who loved me and being with me for all my life than, uh, than be housed without her. So that's about making connections, right? And many of you, I'm agnostic, so I don't have that connection, but many of you have the connection with a, a higher power, with God, with your religion. I have say in terms of criminogenic packages, uh, I don't have any data on this, but people that go to prison and find religion in prison, uh, religion is like a whole criminogenic, a whole new criminogenic package for you. You know, born again Christian, people that find slum in, in prison, uh, you know, they come out, they find a community that supports them, new values, new jobs. Um, also, I forgot to say that uh, recidivism is 61%, right? Uh, if people do college while they're in prison, college education while in prison, recidivism drops to 6%. I think it was 67, right? So from 67 to six, that's a decrease of 61% in recidivism just by getting a college education. Because again, education is one of the top criminogenic needs. Um, all right, we're going for our last uh, video. And then if there's time, we'll talk a little bit after. Uh, so I'm going with journalists this time. Uh, I thought the journalist perspective would be better than a mental health perspective, you know, because they're not they they're not caught up in our lingo, in our powers, you know, our diagnosing people, that, all that stuff that we do. So jo like Johan Hari, John, John Ronson is another journalist. He's famous about this book he wrote about... Uh, the war he was a journalist in the war in iraq and he wrote this book about men staring at ghosts or the men they stare at goats and there's a movie made of that with george clooney plays uh is the main character uh, he's a very funny guy he has another podcast about uh, the history of uh, the pornographic industry uh, industry and why the pornographic what with the advent of internet and all that how that changed uh, humanity's sexual desires by changing the pornographic industry. It's called the butterfly effect, it's pretty cool. But he wrote this book called The Psychopath Test. So when I do this training, for the last 15 years I've been doing this, there's always people in the audience that says, how about the true psychopaths? You know, or some, a psychiatrist that once said to me, well, but Marcelo, what are you saying? 75% you're right but there's 
they're wrong because there's people there they have you know antisocial personalities and psychopathic tendencies and and so there's the people that they're incurable right those need to lock up well you know i i i'm a, i love my favorite tv show ever was dexter i don't know if you guys anybody watched dexter but dexter is the proof that you know even the most psychopathic folks they can go by a set of rules that are very self-serving rules right um but john talks about how like Kyle talks about drug addiction and the war on drugs being a social thing that kind of drove into our personal lives now john is going to talk about how criminogenic and and and, and this idea of psychopathy is also a show, social thing that drills down in our personal life and like the hip-hop video that i just showed you the real criminals the real psychopaths are running this country the psychopaths that you are worrying about are, are running this country not the people that you're gonna see so here's my buddy john and then after this we have a little talk and then we're done what if i told you you could go back 50. yes 50 Sorry. generations of your family that you won't find any you're good right you can hear it's all good all right thanks Joseph. the story starts i was at a uh, friend's house and she had on her shelf a copy of the dsm manual which is the manual of mental disorders it lists every known mental disorder and it used to be back in the 50s a very slim pamphlet and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and now it's 886 pages long and it lists currently 374 mental disorders so I was uh, leafing through it, wondering if um, I had any mental disorders. And it turns out I've got 12. <laughs> I've got generalized anxiety disorder, which is a given. I've got nightmare disorder, which is categorized if you have recurrent dreams of being pursued or declared a failure. And all my dreams involve people chasing me down the street going, you're a failure. <laughs> I've got parent-child relational problems, which I blame my parents for. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm kidding. And I've got malingering. And I think it's actually quite rare to have both malingering and generalized anxiety disorder because malingering tends to make me feel very anxious. Anyway, I was looking through this book wondering if I was much crazier than I thought I was, or maybe it's not a good idea to diagnose yourself with a mental disorder if you're not a trained professional. Or maybe the psychiatry profession has a kind of strange desire to label what's essentially normal human behavior as a mental disorder. I didn't know which of these things was true, but I thought it was kind of interesting. And I thought maybe I should meet a critic of psychiatry to get their view, which is how I ended up having lunch with uh, the Scientologists. Um, it was a man called Brian who runs a crack team of Scientologists who are determined to destroy psychiatry wherever it lies. They're called the CCHR. And I said to him, can, I, can you prove to me that psychiatry is a pseudoscience that can't be trusted? And he said, yes, we can prove it to you. And I said, how? And he said, we can introduce you to Tony. And I said, who's Tony? And he said, Tony's in Broadmoor. Now, Broadmoor is Broadmoor Hospital. It used to be known as the uh, 
brought more asylum for the criminally insane. It's why they send the serial killers and the people who can't help themselves. And I said to Brian, well, what did Tony do? And he said, hardly anything. He beat someone up or something, and he decided to fake madness to get out of a prison sentence. But he faked it too well, and now he's stuck in Broadmoor, and nobody will believe he's sane. Do you want us to try and get you into Broadmoor to meet Tony? So I said, yes, please. So I got the train to Broadmoor. I began to yawn uncontrollably around Kempton Park, which apparently is what dogs also do when anxious. They yawn uncontrollably. And we got to Broadmoor, and I got taken through gate after gate after gate after gate into the wellness centre, which is where you get to meet the patients. It looks like a giant Hampton Inn. It's all peach and pine and calming colours, and the only... uh, bold colours are the reds of the panic buttons and the patients started drifting in and they were quite overweight and wearing sweatpants and quite docile looking and Brian the Scientologist whispered to me they're medicated which to the Scientologist is like the worst evil in the world but I'm thinking it's probably a good idea (laughs) and then Brian said here's Tony and a man was walking in, and he wasn't overweight. He was in very good physical shape, and he wasn't wearing sweatpants. He was wearing a pinstripe suit, and he had his arm outstretched like someone out of The Apprentice. He looked like a man who wanted to wear an outfit that would convince me that he was very sane. And he sat down, and I said, so is it true that you faked your way in here? And he said, yep, yep, absolutely. I beat someone up when I was 17, and I was in prison awaiting trial, and my cellmate said to me, you know what you have to do? Fake madness. Tell him you're mad, you'll get sent to some cushy hospital, nurses will bring you pizzas, you'll have your own PlayStation. So I said, well, how did you do it? He said, well, I asked to see the um, prison psychiatrist, and I'd just seen a film called Crash, in which people get sexual pleasure from crashing cars into walls. So I said to the psychiatrist, "Uh, I get sexual pleasure from crashing cars into walls. And I said, what else? He said, oh, yeah, I told the psychiatrist that I wanted to watch women as they died because it would make me feel more normal. And I said, where'd you get that from? He said, oh, from a biography of uh, Ted Bundy that they had in the prison library. Anyway, he faked madness too well, he said, and they didn't send him to some cushy hospital. They sent him to Broadmoor. And the minute he got there, he said he took one look at the place, asked to see the psychiatrist, said there's been a terrible misunderstanding. I'm not mentally ill. I said, how long have you been here for? He said, well, if I'd just done my time in prison for the original crime, I'd have got five years. I've been in Broadmoor for 12 years. Tony said that it's a lot harder to convince people you're sane than it is to convince them you're crazy. He said, I thought the best way to seem normal would be to talk to people normally about normal things like football and what's on TV. I subscribed to New Scientist and... Recently, they had an article about how the US Army was training bumblebees to sniff out explosives. So I said to a nurse, did you know that the US Army is training bumblebees to sniff out explosives? When I read my medical notes, I saw they'd written, believes bees can sniff out explosives. He said, you know, they're always looking out for non-verbal clues to my mental state, but 
How do you sit in a sane way? How do you cross your legs in a sane way? It's just impossible. And when Tony said that to me, I thought to myself, am I sitting like a journalist? Am I crossing my legs like a journalist? He said, uh, you know, I've got the uh, Stockwell Strangler on one side of me, and I've got the Tiptoe Through the Tulips Rapist on the other side of me. So I tend to stay in my room a lot because I find them quite frightening. And they take that as a sign of madness. They say it proves that I'm aloof and grandiose. So only in Broadmoor would not wanting to hang out with serial killers be a sign of madness. Anyway, he seemed completely normal to me, but what did I know? And when I got home, I, I emailed his clinician, Anthony Maiden. I said, what's the story? And he said, yep, we accept that Tony faked madness to get out of a prison sentence because his hallucinations that had seemed quite uh, cliché to begin with just vanished the minute he got to Broadmoor. However, we have assessed him and we've determined that what he is is a psychopath. And in fact, faking madness is exactly the kind of cunning and manipulative act of a psychopath. It's on the checklist, cunning, manipulative. So faking your brain going wrong is evidence that your brain has gone wrong. And I spoke to other experts, and uh, they said the pinstripe suit, classic psychopath, speaks to items one and two on the checklist, glibness, superficial charm, a grandiose sense of self-worth. I said, well, I said, I want to hang out with the, uh, the other patients. Classic psychopath, it speaks to uh, grandiosity and also lack of empathy. So all the things that had seemed most normal about Tony was evidence, according to his clinician, that he was mad in this new way. He was a psychopath. And his clinician said to me, if you want to know more about psychopaths, you can go on a psychopath spotting course run by Robert Hare, who invented the psychopath checklist. So I did. I went on a psychopath spotting course, and I am now a certified, and I have to say extremely adept, psychopath spotter. <laughs> so, here's the statistics. One in a hundred regular people is a psychopath. So there's 1,500 people in this room. 15 of you are psychopaths. Although that figure rises to 4% of uh, CEOs and, and business leaders, so uh, I think there's a very good chance there's about 30 or 40 psychopaths in this room. It could be carnage by the end of the night. <laughs> Hare said the reason why is because capitalism at its most ruthless rewards psychopathic behavior, the lack of empathy, the glibness, cunning, manipulative. In fact, capitalism, perhaps at its most remorseless, is a physical manifestation of psychopathy. It's like a form of psychopathy that's come down to affect us all. And Hare said to me, you know what, forget about some guy at Broadmoor who may or may not have faked madness. Who cares? That's not a big story. The big story, he said, is corporate psychopathy. You want to go and interview yourself some corporate psychopaths? So I gave it a try. I wrote to the um, Enron people. I, I, I said, can I come and interview you in prison to find out if you're psychopaths? And they didn't reply. Uh, so I changed tack 
uh, I emailed Chainsaw Al Dunlap, uh, the uh, asset stripper from the 1990s. Uh, he would come into failing businesses and close down 30% of the workforce, just turn American towns into ghost towns. And I emailed him and I said, I believe you may have a very special brain anomaly that makes you special. Um, <laughs> interested in the predatory spirit and fearless. Can I come and interview you about your special brain anomaly? And he said, come on over. <laughs> so I went to our Dunlop's grand Florida mansion that was filled with sculptures of predatory animals. There were lions and tigers. He was taking me through the garden. There were falcons and eagles. He was saying to me over there, you've got sharks and more. He was saying this in a less effeminate way. You've got more sharks and you've got tigers. It was like Narnia. <laughs> and then we went into his kitchen. Now, our Dunlap would be brought in to save failing companies. He'd closed down 30% of the workforce and he'd quite often fire people with a joke. Like, for instance, one famous story about him, uh, somebody came up to him and said, I've just bought myself a new car. And he said, well, you may have a new car, but I'll tell you what you don't have, a job. So in his kitchen, he was standing there with his wife, Judy, and his bodyguard, Sean. And I said, you know how I said in my email that you might have a special brain anomaly that makes you special? And he said, yeah, it's an amazing theory. It's like Star Trek. You're going where no man has gone before. And I said, well, <clears throat> some psychologists might say that this makes you... <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, a psychopath. And I said, I've got a, a, a list of psychopathic traits in my pocket. Can I, can I go through them with you? And he looked intrigued, despite himself. And he said, OK, go on. And I said, OK, um, grandiose sense of self-worth which I have to say would have been hard for him to deny because he was standing underneath a giant oil painting of himself. <laughs> he said, well, you've got to believe in you. And I said, uh, manipulative. He said, that's leadership. And I said, shallow affect and inability to experience a range of emotions. He said, who wants to be weighed down by some nonsense emotions? So he was going down the psychopath checklist, basically turning it into who moved my cheese. <laughs> but I did notice something happening to me the day I was without Dunlap. Whenever he said anything to me that was kind of normal, like he said no to juvenile delinquency, he said he got accepted into West Point and, and you know, they don't let delinquents in West Point. He said no to many short-term marital relationships. He's only ever been married twice. Admittedly, his first wife cited in her divorce papers that he once threatened her with a knife and said he always wondered what human flesh tasted like. But people say stupid things to each other in bad marriages in the heat of an argument. And his second marriage has lasted 41 years. So whenever he said anything to me that just seemed kind of non-psychopathic, I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to put that in my book. And then I realized that becoming a psychopath spotter had kind of turned me a little bit psychopathic. So I was desperate to shove him in a box marked psychopath. I was desperate to define him by his maddest edges. And I realized, oh my God, this is what I've been doing for 20 years. It's what all journalists do. We travel across the world with our notepads in our hands and we wait for the gems and the gems are always the 
outermost aspects of our interviewee's personality and we stitch them together like medieval monks and we leave the normal stuff on the floor. And you know, this is a country that overdiagnoses certain mental disorders hugely. Childhood bipolar, children as young as four are being labelled bipolar because they have temper tantrums, which scores them high on the bipolar checklist. When I got back to London, Tony phoned me. He said, why haven't you been returning my calls? I said, well, they say that you're a psychopath. And he said, I'm not a psychopath. He said, you know what, one of the items on the checklist is lack of remorse. But another item on the checklist is cunning manipulative. So when you say you feel remorse for your crime, they say typical of the psychopath to cunningly say he feels remorse when he doesn't. It's like witchcraft. They turn everything upside down. He said, I've got a tribunal coming up. Will you come to it? So I said, okay. So I went to his tribunal. And after 14 years in Broadmoor, they let him go. They decided that he shouldn't be held indefinitely because he scores high on a checklist that might mean that he would has a greater than average chance of recidivism. So they let him go. And outside in the corridor, he said to me, you know what, John? Everyone's a bit psychopathic. He said, you are, I am. Well, obviously I am. I said, what are you going to do now? He said, I'm going to go to Belgium because there's a woman there that I fancy, but she's married, so I'm going to have to get a split up for my husband. <laughs> anyway, that was um, two years ago, and that's where my book ended. And for the last 20 months, everything was fine. Nothing bad happened. He was living with a girl outside London. He was, according to Brian, the Scientologist, making up for lost time, uh, which I know sounds ominous, but isn't necessarily ominous. Unfortunately, after 20 months, he did go back to jail for a month. He um, got into a fracas in a bar, he called it. Ended up going to jail for a month, which I know is bad, but at least a month implies that it's whatever the fracas was, wasn't too bad. And then he phoned me. And you know what? I think it's right that Tony is out. Because you shouldn't define people by their maddest edges. And what Tony is, is a, he's a semi-psychopath. He's a grey area in a world that doesn't like grey areas. But the grey areas are where you find the complexity. And it's where you find the humanity. And it's where you find the truth. And Tony said to me, John, can I buy you a drink in a bar? I just want to thank you for everything you've done for me. And I didn't go. What would you have done? Thank you. All right. Obviously, uh, you as a mental health provider for this individual you couldn't go to the bar and have a drink with him i'm sure so it's kind of hard for you to put yourself in that in those shoes but in some way um you know john's kind of putting himself in the situation where you know the guy was useful for him to write his book but once the book was written right he just kind of walk out of the guy's life so you know are you 
I willing to be there for all the moments, but I thought John had a good perspective of the 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 justice involved situation from the clinical uh, antisocial kind of perspective and how that it's is is a social thing, not necessarily an individual thing. And then Harry had the same thing in terms of the the main criminogenic need that you're gonna see, which is substance. Uh, use 75% of the people who have uh, that criminogenic need. And when we say criminogenic needs because people do drugs, uh, like Johan said, to connect, right? So they can connect with a loved one, so they connect with drugs, like people connect with food, uh, gambling, pornography, uh, drinking, chocolate, whatever it is that you connect when you cannot connect with an individual. And, and how the issue is really the cage society and not really the drug water, right? And uh, and uh, and John just bring the same perspective in terms of uh, the capitalistic psychopathic society that we live. That for certain people, maybe white uh, people that are born in certain zip codes, their psychopathy turned them into presidents and uh, senators and corporate folks. And if you're born in the wrong zip code in the wrong country, that what is seen as psychopathy will take you to jail. So those are the two perspectives. Uh, I, you know, this is just uh, some food for thought. Like I said, this is not a developed field. So you guys are actually, um, hopefully maybe one of you one day would do a training like this and I'll go and I'll watch it and then you teach me some because uh, I'm not a very smart guy. I just read a lot and I had a lot of experience. So I'm just regurgitating all my experience and what I see. I see. But you guys helped me. Um, uh, it's, like I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a brand new field. As long as you are willing to be open and understand the people's stories. I'll tell one more thing. The first murderer that we admitted was a woman and she killed the uh, her rapist. So she was being raped and she killed the rapist and she went to prison. Uh, 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 two weeks after uh, Trayvon Martin was killed by uh, George Zimmerman, a woman in Florida, in Florida they have the 1020 law, 1020 life law. If you commit a crime and you have a gun on you, you get at least 10 years. You commit a crime and discharge the gun, you get at least 20 years. And if you, if you kill someone with a gun, you get life. Except that there is also have the stand by your ground law, which a white man can uh, has 300 times more chance to get out of a murder than a black man, uh, which was the case of Trayvon Martin. Um, so two weeks after, a black woman who is being raped by her husband. Um, oh, I need to put the evaluation there. Uh, the woman is being raped by her husband, uh, decides to take the gun from the kitchen uh, drawer and shoot the air just to scare him away. She gets 20 years in prison for shooting the air uh, to scare her husband away. Because in Florida, you do commit a crime and you shoot the air, you get 20 years. So she got 20 years for shooting the air and the guy who killed uh, George Martin, who killed Trevor Martin, got nothing, as you know. So, you know, in mental health, we say uh, center, you know, members, member center or client center, you know, 
I truly believe that it's not really client center and it's not, I, I believe it's relational center. So in the old days, we used to work on, on an individual, right? The individual was the target of the work. We work with them and then we went home and fine. And then we got the courage to realize it's not just them, it's us too, we change, right? So we kind of made it halfway, right? In, a, in, that, in that relationship, we go home change and they go home change. Now we need to have the courage, one, to go all the way where they at, meet where they at. Second, to do whatever it takes. And third, that it's not enough to change them and to change yourself. You have to change society. You have to be a community activator. One taco shop at a time, one landlord at a time, one family member at a time. But you have to change the world around people. These people are now welcome back in their own communities. Black folks with mental illness are now welcome back in their black churches. Older adults with mental illness are now welcome back in their senior centers. So you have to carve a space for these people in their own communities, which is a hard thing to do. And they all have talents. So if you find their talent and their passion, they can go back to their community as givers instead of takers. They're not welcome back because they're seen as takers. Restorative justice is to carve a space in this for these people back in their communities where they can go back as givers, as punk rockers, as guitar players, as lasagna cookers, instead of uh, schizophrenics, druggies, gang members, you know. I'm getting into my soapbox now. <laughs> I want to thank uh, all of you guys for spending this time with me, especially the folks that participated a lot. Thank you, guys. Uh, and um, I see you as a culture warrior, so go out there and change the world.